This is The Guardian. Hallo Podcast-Liebhaber. Wir haben ein paar Neuigkeiten über den Women's Health Podcast Going for Goal, von denen wir glauben, dass sie dir gefallen könnten. Wir sind wieder da. In dieser Staffel, die von Nike unterstützt wird, dreht sich alles um das Thema Laufen. Abonnieren Sie Going for Goal und hören Sie ab dem 6. September jeden Dienstag inspirierende Frauen, die über die Schlüsselrolle sprechen, die das Laufen in ihrem Leben spielt, sowie Expertentipps von Nike-Lauftrainern, die Ihnen helfen, Ihr eigenes Lauftraining zu verbessern. Remember when Liz Truss said this? To look at everything through the lens of redistribution, I believe is wrong. Well, it seems like it was a pretty good indication of what she thinks. She may have frozen energy prices, but in an interview this week, she confirmed that she's prioritizing lifting the cap on bankers' bonuses. So that, that means the rich get richer, that's if, fine. If that means taking difficult decisions, yes, I'm absolutely prepared to take those decisions. In something of a race against the clock, this week the government is announcing how it plans to help businesses with the energy price cap, get the NHS through the winter, and finally on Friday we'll get what's being called the mini-budget. Will it really help? And what does it tell us about Truss's vision for the country? I'm John Harris, and you're listening to Politics Week in the UK for The Guardian. Joining me today are Miata Farnbuller, the CEO of the New Economics Foundation, and David Gork, former Conservative Justice Secretary and Chief Secretary to the Treasury when Theresa May was the Prime Minister. Hello to you both. Hello. Hello. Um, I wanted to talk about Ukraine to start with, and specifically what Vladimir Putin said on Wednesday morning, not least his partial mobilisation, in quote marks, of more Russian troops and his claim that Russia has lots of weapons to reply to what he claims is Western aggression, obviously a a characteristically less than subtle reference to nuclear war. When we started this new incarnation of Politics Weekly UK, Ukraine was the issue that we were covering. Everyone was doing that. I mean, now it's not gone away, and it's underlying all of the, of the most pressing issues that we talk about domestically. But we're clearly not talking about it, or we haven't been talking about it, like we were back in February or March. But this is huge, terrifying stuff, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, look, it's really, really scary. What's very clear is this hasn't gone the way that he thought it would. Um, he's clearly on the back foot and the defensive, and I think that makes him very dangerous. Uh, and I think all we can hope for is that there are both efforts uh, behind the scenes uh, to be trying to find dialogue um, and roots out of this, but that there are people around him that can see that he has lost this. We're waiting, aren't we, David, for some sort of awful denouement as far as that war is concerned and Putin's leadership, I suspect, is concerned. And we don't know what that is or what form it's going to take or what it's going to mean for uh, the West. Yes, he's a, he's a cornered rat. And uh, that is uh, a dangerous situation, and we don't quite know what he's going to do. We cannot allow this to deter us from supporting the Ukrainians. The the best hope here is that there are forces of sanity still left within uh, the Kremlin who will remove Putin if it comes to it. Now, by comparison, um, domestic affairs seem very, very parochial, but nonetheless, that's what we're going to be talking about. Let's talk about... Liz Truss. She's marked herself out, it seems to me, as having a pretty 
classically sort of Thatcherite view of things. A former minister who work, who has worked with her, I don't know whether this was you, David, off the record, forgive me if it was, was recently quoted in The Times saying that, quote, she thinks the state is malevolent, that it's holding things back, is generally a burden in life and should be smaller and get out of the way. It really does come from the heart. Now, given that she was once um, a member of the Liberal Democrats, she obviously has the zeal of a convert. Um, her favoured solutions to our economic problems, which are very real and barely need mentioning, are all about deregulation, cutting tax and rolling back government. I think it's probably instructive and useful to make a distinction between what Liz Truss has to do and what she wants to do. She has to impose this energy price gap, which is obviously one of the biggest market interventions any government has ever done. That's politically unavoidable. But doing that, it seems to me, gives her cover to pursue what's really a fundamental agenda, which marks a real change from the kind of conservatism we had under Theresa May and Boris Johnson. Um, it's about abandoning the idea that the state should try and reshape the economy and believing instead in letting loose market forces. And everything seems to be focused, as far as she and Kwasi Kwarteng are concerned, on the idea that the right sort of, if you pull the right policy levers in this sort of free market way, that's the key to triggering a, a growth spurt. I mean, this might be sort of magical thinking. It's quite bizarre, it seems to me, which they think will increase national income by around 2.5%. At least, that's how you do it. This is Liz Truss talking to the BBC's political editor, Chris Mason, on Tuesday. She was visiting, uh, she is in America for her first foreign trip as Prime Minister. And she was asked about her plan to lift the cap on bankers' bonuses. Whose side are you on? What I want to see is a growing economy so everybody in our country has the high-paid jobs that they deserve, that the investment into their town or city or, or area the new business is being set up. That's the kind of Britain that I want to see. And if and that, that means, means the rich get richer, that's if, fine. If that means taking difficult decisions, which are going to help Britain become more competitive, help Britain become more attractive, help more investment flow into our country, yes, I'm absolutely prepared to take those decisions. That's quite something, isn't it, Miata? At a moment like this, she is clearly saying, I want the rich to get richer which is pretty bold, apart from anything else. <laughs> yeah, look, I think what is clear is that she will be a bold government. Um, I think what is terrifying for where I stand is that I think a lot of the arguments that we thought had been had and won feels like it's all being junked. My real worry is that by going for that energy price freeze for two years, which I didn't think the government would do, likely to cost 150 billion, could go up to 200 billion. That then becomes an excuse not to do other things. That becomes an excuse not to help families on low and modest incomes uh, with additional support that they're going to need because 2,500 pounds is still a huge whack out of your household budget. It's an excuse not to boost benefits, which we absolutely need to do because it has been hammered for a decade. But critically, let's remember all public services are now facing huge real terms cuts because when the spending review was set, it was done on much lower rates of inflation. In terms of the logic of all of this and the idea that if you pull back the state, if you let the markets go wild, they will deliver for you. We've learned that doesn't work. So, you know, the lesson of the last 15 years has been, yes, we've had periods of growth. And, you know, David's government delivered periods of growth. Um, despite austerity, I would argue that had they not gone down that route, growth would have been higher. But what was absolutely clear is that it has not translated into living standards improving. Living standards on average have barely budged uh, for the last 15 years. 
David, um, tell me first of all about your understanding of, of my kind of view that there's a, there's a quite a pronounced shift here, or a very pronounced shift, away from where Theresa May and Boris Johnson were in the wake of the Brexit referendum. Theresa May talked about things like putting the full power of government at the service of ordinary working class people. You know, There was a sort of a re-embrace of the state, at least rhetorically, as far as conservative politics is concerned. We've now got this sort of handbrake turn. So I want to know what you think of, whether you think that's true. And then secondly, what you make of... of of that shift if, if there is that shift and, and whether it's going to work in any way well I, first of all i think you're right there is a shift um so this is a movement away from uh, if you like big state conservatism uh, i think there's an interesting political point here because the conservative coalition at the last general election included people who i think favored a big state so so i think there's a there's an interesting issue there in terms of whether it will work, I mean, funnily enough, the, the issue that has attracted quite a lot of attention this week, and you, you mentioned it as the, the banker's bonus cap, it's really politically difficult. They're going to run into a lot of trouble over it. But actually, the banker's bonus cap is not a particularly good policy. Uh, and I think, um, you know, I think it's perfectly legitimate to to remove that. I don't think it does us as a country any particular uh, favours. Um, but if you're really serious about growth, I'm not sure that any of the tax cuts that have been talked about or any of the deregulatory moves that have been uh, suggested are, are going to do it. I mean, you know, some of them could be helpful. Some of them might make a contribution. But, you know, if we've got funda- you know, where our fundamental problems are at the moment, well, there's a there's a lack of sort of political stability. Um, we don't have access to labour in the way that we we need to. We've got we've got shortages all over the economy. We've made it much harder to trade with our biggest trading partner, the European Union. You know, the rhetoric about growth is all very well, but I'm I'm not sure we're yet hearing any policies that are going to do anything like get us to two and a half percent growth a year. And tell me, tell me why you think that. Um the current cap, which is a legacy of our membership of the EU on bankers' bonuses, isn't a, isn't a very good thing from your perspective. If if your objective is to reduce the remuneration of bankers, I don't think it particularly does that. It just switches uh, remuneration more towards a fixed salary rather than bonuses as such. It, it takes away a bit of flexibility for banks because they would rather reward on performance rather than have higher fixed salaries. This is a highly competitive and mobile market and people can choose where they want to locate. Uh, but there is, but clearly in what you said, there is a big question here about priorities and what, um, and what people like us call optics. Right? Yeah, absolutely. At a time in which people can't afford to heat their homes, the fact that the Prime Minister is on television talking about lifting the cap on, on, on bankers being paid more than twice their annual salary just looks awful yeah I, I look e- even if you're sympathetic to the idea yeah, which i'm not yeah well as, as as someone who who is a bit more sympathetic to it i, <laughs> I kind of agree with you as to the optics uh, i think the argument that liz would would make is look if we deliver growth if, if if overall this works and by the time we get to the next general election and we could see we're on a clearly you know upward trajectory and and things are coming coming right um then you know never mind the the, the optics, you know, people will appreciate the delivery of economic growth. And, and there is something in that. My, 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 my worry from their perspective is I'm not, I'm not sure that, you know, when you, when you look at it in the round, that there is a clear agenda for economic growth. But I, you know, I may be maligning them. There may be something that, you know, some rabbit pulled from the hat on, 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 on Friday. But I'm not, I'm not overly optimistic. 
I mean, you can stoke a sort of sugar rush boom in financial services if you want, but that that's not going to reach the kind of people that the Conservatives need to vote for them in sufficient numbers at the next election for a start. And then also, it's not really meaningful economic growth. It doesn't denote an improvement in your fundamental economic position, does it? I mean, you, you've taken the words out of my mouth. Like, I think if we get to if we get to numbers two percent, but that doesn't mean better jobs for people. That doesn't mean higher wages. That doesn't mean an improvement in living standards, which, let's be frank, has been the story of the last 15 years. Then it doesn't matter. Like, this is my issue with the kind of growth, growth, growth thing. It doesn't matter if it doesn't make people better off. And so if you boost the financial services, but actually there is no filter into the rest of the real economy, and it doesn't mean better jobs for people, it doesn't mean progression for people, it doesn't mean opportunities for people, then what are we all doing? And I thought we'd all learnt that. The other thing is, David, that that sort of slightly more collectivist, pro-state sort of approach, which definitely coloured the conservatism of Theresa May and Boris Johnson, it happened for a reason. It was it was a response to Britain's objective economic circumstances. The fact that we we've got these awful regional imbalances, which are exactly the imbalances that prevent that sort of growth in London and the city, then reaching other parts of the country. It's a hell of a bundle of stuff to throw overboard, isn't it? Well, I think the the shift, if you like, under the Theresa May and Boris Johnson years was 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 more driven if you like, by social factors, not economic factors. Uh, and, and of course, the two are linked. Uh, but I think it was it was it was driven, you know, levelling up is is primarily not about increasing the overall level of growth, I, I would argue it is about redistributing it. Um, yes, it is. Liz Truss's least favourite. And, and yes, yeah. Uh, and, and look, in terms of the, the, the point here, you know, I, I think, you know, growth is still good. I'm, I'm not sure I accept the argument, it's the wrong type of growth. I mean, remember, the, the, the top you know, 50,000 or so uh, you know, people with the highest income in this country, that's 0.1% of, of income taxpayers, they contribute over 10% of our income tax receipts. Now, that that is money that goes towards public services and goes towards supporting the economy as a whole. Now, you might well, argue it should be more. Co- you're getting dangerously close to trickle-down economics well, here, I'm, aren't I'm, you, if you don't mind I'm, me saying I'm, so? I'm, I'm making the point, it's not altogether <laughs> surprising that um, a, a Conservative government wants to see mobile international you know, activity that could be located here that is really quite tax-rich for the Exchequer, wants, wants that to occur in, in the UK. Uh, and Miata, let's, let's emphasise what a precarious economic position we are in. You don't hear much about it when you switch on the TV news and so on, but there is a serious prospect of a sterling crisis, isn't there? Yeah, look, uh, you know, if we think about where the pound is at the moment, it's clear that out there there isn't that much confidence uh, in the economy. I think, you know, many analysts think we're already in recession, that we're going to see that coming through the numbers uh, quite soon. I don't think we can underestimate just how difficult things are. And what worries me is that the structural stuff, so David's right, you know, the the massive shortages in our labour market that we're seeing um, on top of long-term structural problems, because by the way, we have never invested enough. We don't invest enough in this country. We don't invest in infrastructure, we don't invest in people, and we have always lagged behind other countries. And if the economy tanks, it is people and those that can least afford it that will be hammered the most, which is why, you know, by all means, talk up growth, but my God, we need a plan that actually gets to the problems that we're facing. Okay, um, let's talk for a minute about uh, the politician who'll be at the centre of the news on Friday, Quasi Quartain. We talked about, or I talked about, Liz Truss as being a very ideological kind of politician with a very clear set 
of priorities and values. Exactly the same applies to Quasi Quateng. Quasi Quateng, along with Liz Truss and Pretty Patel and Chris Skidmore, who's now a sort of net zero merchant, uh, and Dominic Raab, whatever happened to him, uh, they were all the co-authors of a, of a famous, infamous, some would say, book called Britannia Unchained, which really was a sort of ultra-free market, neo-Thatcherite manifesto. A fascinating read. I mean, you know, politicians are usually in the habit of sort of not telling you what they think. And uh, this book did quite the reverse. Um, I was really amazed by it and fascinated by it when it came out. Um, this is a long time ago, in 2012. And um, I put in a call to Quasi Kwarteng and wondered whether he fancied coming into The Guardian to be interviewed by me and a colleague. And much to my amazement, he agreed to come in and he talked very volubly about everything that was in that book. Among other things, he talked about his, his conviction that the welfare state needed to be much smaller and stricter and that British working lives had to be more like the working lives of people in China. This is how he talked admiringly about conditions in Chinese factories. I mean, I've been around the Chinese factory and I can tell you that they time absolutely every single thing um, you know, that you could ever do, ever any process. And they, and they have to do a certain job in an hour. And if they do it in 58 minutes, they get two free minutes in which they can just sit down and talk to their friend. Um, that was a, a fascinating conversation. It was quite alarming in certain respects. And I, I knew I was talking to someone with pretty entrenched, firm views. And now he's the Chancellor of the Exchequer. He's in charge, and we're going to find out what his priorities are on Friday. David, first of all, have you worked with Quasi Quartet? I just wonder what you make of him and what you make of the sort of worldview that you hear in those sorts of remarks. I've not worked that closely with him. I mean, I've known him a long time. I mean, funnily enough, he was uh, selected as Conservative candidate for the, the constituency of Brent East in the run-up to the 2005 general election, and I'd been the candidate in 2001. So I met him then. I was in the room when he was uh, selected as the candidate. Uh, I mean, he's a he's a big figure in every sense. Very tall, big guy, very voluble, as you say. You know, he is you know, quite charismatic, centre of attention. I think you're right, he's got very entrenched uh, and strong views. You know, he's gone into politics. And I think, you know, let me give, I may disagree with them on, on some of this, but, you know, a certain amount of credit to Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng. I think they went into politics because they wanted to do things. They, they believe in policies that will make a difference. It's not just about, you know, acquiring a title. The, the question is whether he's got the sort of political skills to deliver what is a bold and radical agenda with, with actually being able to, you know, to do this, you know, to be able to deliver it, to be able to communicate it, to be able to understand. I mean, he's not that experienced at the at the top end. And, you know, sometimes he can, he says things in interviews where I think he goes a little bit further than he meant to. Um, so I think there'll be quite a lot of scrutiny on him. But I mean, he is, he is a clever and thoughtful guy, um, you know, motivated by the belief that his, his policies will make a positive difference. Miata, have you had any dealings with Quasi Kwarteng? No, so I've, ne I've never worked uh, for him or with him. I've been I've been up against him in uh, kind of question times or uh, sort of uh, political panels. You know, he's always seemed like a very you know nice guy. Um, I think the thing that always strikes me is that he never seems that much on top of his brief, uh, which I think is very difficult when you're chancellor. I think the thing that will be key is you know. 
there's nothing wrong with conviction politicians. I didn't agree with everything that Rishi Sunak did, but broadly, when he was provided with advice, it seems like he listened, he reflected and he acted, which is why he did things that were counterintuitive for him, like furlough. Uh, and my worry is at the time that we need politicians at the top that will look at the world and look at the state of the crisis and make the right decisions for the country and put ideology aside, that we might not have that. And I think it's just really dangerous and we can't afford it. We just can't afford it as a country. Are you referring a little bit obliquely to the dismissal of uh, that senior civil servant at the Treasury? Tom Scholar. This is uh, Kwasi Kwarteng's sort of founding, defining act as Chancellor, is to get rid of the senior civil servant. He's also, um, I, I read, official economic forecasts are sort of in a state of suspension as well. So it looks like he might not want the kind of advice that you're talking about. Yeah, I've been up against Treasury orthodoxy, and it's re- frustrating because I don't think the Treasury's always right. I think the kind of slavish um, hold on to like deficit and deficit economics, I think, has been wrong. But he's an experienced civil servant. He, at the time of crisis, you know someone that knows their stuff, has been there for a while, while and can help you navigate through that. Does that worry you, David? Yes, it does. I mean, I worked with, with Tom Scholar when I was in the Treasury. Uh, yeah, he's a very bright, very conscientious, very impressive figure with bags of experience. You know, he was there you know, during the global financial crisis. Uh, he was obviously there during the response to COVID. I think losing him as an individual is, is, is unfortunate, but I think it also undermines an important institution, uh, which, is, which is the Treasury. And it also undermines uh, the, the, the approach that you would want from your officials, which is to tell you the truth, even when it's inconvenient. In fact, especially when it's inconvenient. OK, Miata's nodding. So on that uh, little note of consensus, we will pause for a moment. In the next half of the podcast, we'll be talking about what the government has so far announced in terms of policy and what we're expecting in Friday's mini budget fiscal event. Whatever you choose to call it, we'll be back talking about that. It starts the same way. Can I tell you a secret? It would start off with a random girl and just say, Hey, hun, I'm going to tell you some secret now. Please don't mention it to anybody. But it quickly escalates. It just spread like a wildfire. I still sleep with clubs next to my bed. I didn't know how far this was going to go. People seldom show their true selves online, but one man... He's taken it much further. I was terrified. Who is the cyberstalker behind these messages? He actually said to me, good luck proving it's me. And why is he sending them? Because he became more and more isolated. He just went within himself even further. Do you punish someone for acting out whatever is going on in their mind that we don't understand? And if I could just turn back the clock, I'm The Guardian. I'm Shirin Kaler. And this is Can I Tell You a Secret? A story about obsession, fear, and the lives we lead online. Search for Can I Tell You a Secret wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe now. All episodes will be available on Friday, the 23rd of September. 
Es sind etwa 5% der Menschen, die Online-Hass verbreiten. Lasst uns dagegen gemeinsam lauter sein. Wenn Liebe laut ist, hat Hass keine Chance. Werde Teil der Initiative gegen Hass im Netz der Deutschen Telekom und ihren Partnern. Auf telekom.com slash gegen Hass im Netz. Welcome back. Now, as far as the government's response to this... Uh absolutely towering set of economic crises that we're faced with all will be revealed on friday but on wednesday morning the new business secretary jacob rees mogg there are two two sets of words i never thought i'd have to say um announced plans to help businesses charities and schools with their bills the government he said will cap the cost of gas and energy for non-domestic users until march 2023 this will save some businesses up to half of their projected energy costs jacob rees mogg said it will likely cost tens of billions but the fine details still aren't all there. Um, here he is announcing the plan in a slick video uploaded to Twitter. Businesses are the pulsating, beating, blood-supplying heart of our economy. The action we are taking will boost growth and protect jobs and livelihoods. We want to keep high streets like this one, humming this winter and beyond. Pulsating, beating, humming. Um, David... Helping businesses with their bills, whether they're humming and pulsating or not, but only until March 2023, which isn't very far away at all. That will have to be extended, won't it? Probably. Um, I mean, unless something remarkable happens with, with energy prices. I'm not going to be too critical of the government on, on that because it was an urgent need for a set of policies for this winter. They needed to move quickly. Um, it is quite possible that this is not the best way in which you could support businesses in terms of not as well targeted as it might be. But that might be the only option that is available now, and time is of the essence. The scale of the predicament facing small businesses in particular, I don't think that's even properly understood yet. Yeah, no, I don't think it is. And I think that the key thing to remember is that most businesses are just coming out of the pandemic and the hit that they took then. So there isn't that resilience. There aren't the reserves to be able to absorb another massive hit, which is why I think it feels so precarious. Um, I think the government is right to act. I think they've got to act quickly. They had to do something. Um, I suspect it's not going to be enough. I hope that in the mini budget, there is a bigger package because I think we're going to have to look at additional things for businesses because I think they're just being hit from all sides. It's not just energy. It's energy combined with workforce shortages, combined with a lot of other pressures that they're facing that makes this such a point of danger for so many businesses, particularly small ones. Okay, now this big event, fiscal event, mini budget, whatever you call it, is going to happen on Friday. If recent briefings, lots and lots of them to newspapers are anything to go by, we should expect to see, and I might miss a few out here, but let's have a go, details of the energy price freeze, the reversal of the increase in national insurance, the shelving of plans to put up corporation tax, a cut in stamp duty, new low tax and low regulation um, development zones, and what we talked about earlier, the scrapping of the cap on bankers' bonuses. Now, it, I don't think it'll be part of what we hear on Friday, but the trust government, we all know, is also going to end the moratorium on fracking. It feels like, as much as anything, like a lot of policies the right of the Conservative Party has been wanting to see enacted for years. And now it's finally got the chance and it's going to put them into action. Do you get that sense, David? Uh, yeah, to a large extent, the, the, the sort of free market 
rights but there's, there's also been a, a strong strand in conservative thinking for a very long time which is about fiscal responsibility and yeah, and and you know i was you know obviously part of the treasury team for a long time and we we used to make the argument you know you can't just spend your way out of problems you you can't borrow more in order to borrow less um yeah it's all sorts of areas where you know people like me Atta and i would would perhaps have sort of disagreed and and now now we've got a conservative government that is that is absolutely prepared to turn the taps on in the form of lower taxes rather than higher spending but the point remains you know seems to be prepared to increase borrowing very very significantly um, and in your heart of hearts what do you think it will do I think it will leave us with a large structural deficit and at some point or other future taxpayers are going to have to pick up the bill and there is a risk and I don't want to put it any more strongly than this but there is a risk that the markets look at this and go come on this is not you know this is this is not sustainable and you know we see the pound falling significantly okay and then what happens we're back to sort of black wednesday land when interest rates could jump up even further among other things well you're into the sort of situation that you know previous governments faced in the sort of 60s and 70s where suddenly you're having to make a kind of big effort to win win back market credibility and that could involve you know the Bank of England putting up interest rates a lot uh, and a reversal of fiscal policy. Um, you know, really painful stuff. You know, these, these things aren't supposed to happen to Conservative governments. Miata, what do you think um, in the sort of short term, in the immediate moment, will be the effect of uh, reversing the increase in national insurance, for example? We, we know what the effects will be. Um, we know that it will disproportionately benefit uh, richer households. The top 5% benefit, uh, I think, twice as much as the entire bottom 50% from that tax change. I've been arguing for the need for stimulus, for the need for investment, for the need for the government to use its fiscal space and headroom. And they're doing that, which is great, but they're doing it in all the wrong ways. You don't cut taxes, and not least because when you cut taxes, you know, David talked about, you know, Going back to austerity, uh, we, it will be austerity because the other side of those tax cuts is at a time when we know our public services are already on their knees. We're taking resources away from them. And no one is talking about that. But I don't know how our schools and hospitals are going to cope with tax cuts. There is a lot in that argument. And I, I, I was just sort of thinking if, if we're invited back to your podcast, John, in January... I suspect we'll be... Take it as read. We will have I, you back I, in January, I, if not before. Well, I, I look forward to it. But I've, I think we'll be talking about the NHS. Um, yeah, it's going to be a really tough winter for, for, for the NHS. And I don't think the government can kind of wish away some of the, the, the spending pressures that exist in public services. I'm very struck as well by the sense of a government really going against the grain if you look at the sort of mood of government's across advanced economies you know if you read a publication like the financial times you know it's not a a renowned hotbed of sort of radical leftism they their columnists very often talk about the sense that we've reached the end of an era of sort of unbridled wealth accumulation and the scales being tilted in favor of capital and labor being left out i mean that's the sort of message of what biden has been doing in america also right-wing populism you can argue is sort of symptomatic of the fact that the way that the west had been running its economies broadly speaking for the last 20 or 30 years no longer worked there were these big distributional questions which needed to be tackled right and just at the moment that all of that reaches its peak in the uk in the form of the energy crisis the trust government is running in exactly the opposite direction it, does it feel i mean i, I would 
assume that's probably your view of it, Miatra. I'm curious as to what David thinks about it. Yeah, I mean, that's my view. It's bold. Um, (laughs) I think it's slightly mad, but it's bold. And, you know, I, I remember Theresa May and Jeremy Corbyn at one point was saying the same thing. The economy doesn't work for everyone. The economy works for the few, not the many. And I thought, and my response was, thank God, politics finally gets it. They can see what's happening. And there is a moment where there is consensus about the fact that the way the economy works and that kind of neoliberal model that we've had for the last 40 years has run out of road and we need something else. And it feels like we have a government that's just pretending none of that happened and hoping that we can go back to 1918 and it'll all be okay. Uh, and I desperately hope that, you know, politics gives them a kick up the something uh, and there is a sort of reawakening uh, that takes us back to the sort of consensus that I think we had got to. Well, come on to that, David. Bold but mad. Well, I- I'm sort of struck, you know, we-, we often talk about sort of political realignment. And how you know parties of the centre right have, have have suddenly been able to win over votes from people who traditionally voted sort of centre left on economics, but were culturally quite right wing, and, and that I think is partly driven why centre right parties, not just in the UK but around the world, have generally moved away from a sort of very free market approach. But but Liz is is just sort of. So it's like, is he just ignoring that? And, you know, and just going to say, well, look, I think this is what delivers growth. We haven't really had this sort of, um, you know, red and tooth and claw, if that's the right colour, you know, free market approach. Um, yeah, let's do that. And it's going to deliver. And I believe it'll work. Just to finish, I had a bit of a moment the other day when the sort of the foreground of, of what Truss and her ministers was proposing seemed to amount to lifting the cap on bankers' bonuses and bringing back fracking. And I just thought, well, apart from anything else, this is electoral suicide, isn't it? And and then when when you hear more, apart from the energy price cap, of course, but the rest of the agenda, it's very hard to sort of to imagine someone threading that together into an appealing electoral story. But then I start to check myself, and I wonder, David, am I missing something here, or is it as sort of ele- madly electorally risky as it looks? If, as I say, by the time we get to the next general election. And the economy is growing really strongly and that, you know, we've come through this tunnel and we're out into the daylight. Uh, and she can turn around and say, look, look what I've done. You know, I inherited a terrible situation. We're delivering economic growth. Let me finish the job. Then then actually she can win. Um, but your if's doing a lot of work. They're doing a lot of work there because I think the likelihood is that's not the situation we're going to be in 2024. Well, I think she's approaching it as if she's got you know, four or five years, and it is, you know, it's 1979, and we're going to do some tough stuff, and we're going to get control of inflation, and we're going to weaken the trade unions, and never mind um, Argentina invading the Falkland Islands, but, you know, we'll start to see the benefits at the time of the next general election, because in four or five years, there's a lot you can do. Miata, it sounds like a school play about the early 1980s. It does. It does. But, you know, in this is an experiment. We are going against the grain of what all other major advanced economies are going to be doing. Um, And, you know, in that experiment, we will either prove or disprove this thing about free markets being the answer to everything. I think it's risky because in the end, it's ordinary people that are going to suffer the consequences of them getting that experiment wrong. Uh, So I, I, I hope politics clashes with ideology very quickly so that this doesn't play out uh, to the nth degree because I think it'll be really painful for the country. Clearly this is going to be a government that's going to give us no end of things to talk about as well as going back to listen to my old post-punk records and start wearing stretch jeans again by the sound of it. Anyway uh, on that uh, slightly unpleasant thought just falls to me to say thank you and goodbye to me out of Farmbuller and David Gork. Thank you both. Thank you. 
Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening out there. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, make sure you subscribe to Politics Week the UK wherever you get your podcasts. Politics Week the UK will be back on Friday this week for a special episode to run you through the aforementioned mini-budget, fiscal event, whatever you call it, what it means for you, for business, and for the direction that we're all headed in. This episode was produced by Frankie Toby. The music is by Axel Kakutier, and the executive producers are Maz Ebtahaj and Nicole Jackson. This is The Guardian. Audible, hör die Welt vernetzter. Wir reden über die Stories hinter den größten Hypes. Über Virales, Memes und Cat-Content. Hör Quelle Internet mit Sophie Passmann. Ein Audible Original Podcast. Nur bei Audible. Jetzt kostenlos testen.